Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode is on Book of Mormon content. We will be discussing the faith crisis issues that might arise from study of the theological content and text of the Book of Mormon. This is my favorite episode of the 12. I think these issues that we'll talk about here are probably the most impactful in terms of moving someone from a literalistic, fundamentalistic view of the Book of Mormon, and for that matter, the LDS Church in general, to a more metaphorical and humanistic view. But also, I think from a faith reconstruction standpoint, I think what we're going to discuss here will be some of the most powerful concepts in terms of viewing our faith in the in the Book of Mormon and the LDS Church as inspired and inspiring and spiritually powerful and valuable. So, let's get into it. So I'm recording this episode after releasing the first three episodes and have received some feedback from listeners. And thank you for that feedback. It's been mostly positive, and that's very comforting and reassuring to me. If you like the podcast so far and think this might help people that you know, please share it with them. And I don't mean necessarily share in social media posts, but share it with the people in your life that you think might benefit. If you get a chance, please give us a review on iTunes. I think that's a way to make it more visible and make it come in higher in the search engines and everything. So thanks for your support. Our first topic is Deutero-Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament who wrote in about 700 BC on topics like Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh, calling Israel to repentance for breaking this covenant, and then prophecy of judgment and punishment, and then also prophecy of redemption through a Messiah, this concept of a remnant and restoration. And Nephi is inserting many chapters from Isaiah to share this message and also to kind of personalize it to his people and to his audience. But the problem is that Isaiah wrote in the year 700 BC, which would have been on the brass plates for Nephi, but then we have what scholars believe about half of Isaiah comes later and written by future writers, maybe the school of Isaiah, people that were honoring him or writing as if they were him. But this was written in the exilic period and then the post-exilic period of 500, 550 BC and then maybe 500 BC where this Deutero and Trito Isaiah comes in. And many of the chapters that were quoted in Nephi by Nephi comes from this Deutero Isaiah. So how does it come into the Book of Mormon? That's the question. And then where it gets really interesting is how the creator of the Book of Mormon inserted Isaiah into the English text of the Book of Mormon. And we see that it's very clear that the translator used the 1769 version of the King James Bible, but made minor modifications. And so the way the modifications are made kind of gives us insight and, and kind of puts some humanistic, modern fingerprints all through this. These modern fingerprints are kind of evident in a few areas. One is in the italics. The italics in the King James Version are words that are kind of non-contextual words that the writers of the King James Bible put in italics to show that they don't correlate perfectly to a Hebrew word. 
but they're required just to make it grammatically and correct and coherent in English. So there's an idea in Joseph's day that italics, because they didn't correlate to the Hebrew, to the ancient Hebrew, that there might be, that might be an area where the translators got it wrong. Okay. And we see a huge portion of the italics were edited about 38% according to Royal Skousen. And that's not the only edits the translator made, but the other areas also kind of show this humanistic element because some of the edits carried forward errors in the King James Version translation. So obviously the King James translation has got some errors. It's not perfect from the, from the Hebrew. And the insertion of these chapters didn't fix some of those errors. And then another issue is that some of the edits appear to bring in errors that didn't exist in the King James Version. The Book of Mormon, Isaiah, has introduced new errors that take us further away from the Hebrew than the, even the King James translation. Grant Hardy, in his book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, talks about how some LDS informed defenders, apologists, dismiss this Deutero-Isaiah problem as, quote, simply the work of academics who do not believe in prophecy. And then he asserts that this is, quote, clearly an inadequate and inaccurate response to a significant body of detailed historical and literary analysis. And then he proposes that we should, quote, acknowledge that we probably know less about what constitutes an inspired translation than we do about ancient Israel. Once one accepts the possibility of divine intervention, the theology can accommodate the always tentative results of scholarship. So I think what he's doing is he's acknowledging that there's some sort of modern influence on this text, but also encouraging us to view that, view that, that it could be revelatory and prophetic and inspired. There are other instances where chapters are copied into the Book of Mormon from the King James Version. One example is the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus comes to visit the Nephites in Third Nephi. And this is quite interesting. Royal Skousen, BYU scholar, who believes in Book of Mormon historicity. Thank you to someone who said I was butchering that word historicity and saying it historicity. I've heard it a thousand times, but for some reason I got stuck on saying it the wrong way. Very embarrassing, but thanks for the heads up on that. Royal Skousen believes in a historical core of the Book of Mormon, but there is a translation that has a creative element. And he said on this Sermon on the Mount issue, The Book of Mormon is an account of real people and real events, but its translation is not a literal one, and its discourses may also be creative, such as the Sermon on the Mount as a conglomerate of various statements Jesus made at different times as they are found in Luke, for instance. And then Dan Peterson who is kind of the, the man in Mormon apologetics right now. And if there's anybody who kind of speaks authoritatively for fair Mormon or for LDS apologetics in general in, in 2020, it's Dan Peterson. And he acknowledged this in an online interaction with Royal Skousen. Yes, I'm inclined to see the Sermon on the Mount as a unity as well. So what they're referring to is that New Testament scholars view the Sermon on the Mount as Maybe there was an event where Jesus was preaching on, on that hill to those people, but the text that was inserted in, in the New Testament appears to be from scholars, uh, just a conglomeration, a collection of various sayings and, and quotes that they had from Jesus that were floating around. 
the Gospels weren't written until 40 years after Jesus died, and there's been a lot of work leading up to that point until where that text was put in. We're going to go over all this in the New Testament episode. So it's just very interesting that here we have our best LDS defenders and even the conservative apologist-type guys acknowledging that this Sermon on the Mount, Book of Mormon text is kind of different maybe than we had already always assumed it as if Jesus is saying these things and we've got people directly recording it, writing it down, and that it's preserved through Moroni and it's preserved through the translation. We have it exactly as Jesus said. Maybe it's not that way is what our best LDS scholars are telling us. Nick Frederick, BYU scholar, also has some very interesting things to say about this. He points out that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Third Nephi, the translator of the Book of Mormon also made some small edits to these chapters also in a very interesting way. And Jesus uses the phrase verily, verily in Third Nephi. And he doesn't use the phrase verily, verily in the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, which were the first gospels coming around 70 and 80 AD. And it's not till John comes in in the late first century where we get Jesus saying verily, verily. And John is where we get the high Christology and the really formed theology of Jesus as God from the beginning. And Nick Frederick calls the Book of Mormon Sermon on the Mount a Joannine Sermon on the Mount. And he calls the Jesus of the Book of Mormon a Joannine Jesus. So this is kind of cool. We have a Synoptic Gospel Sermon on the Mount. And now through the Book of Mormon, we have a Joannine Sermon on the Mount. The Book of Mormon also inserts large portions of Paul into the Book of Mormon, fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, faith, hope, and charity. And this happens both after Paul would have said those words by Moroni and before we see the gifts of the Spirit in Omni. And some LDS defenders have said, well, maybe these words are in the Old Testament writing somewhere that we don't have now, and Paul is pulling from that, and Book of Mormon prophets are also pulling from that. But Nick Frederick is saying that we need to look at this more carefully and that that's not really possible. His research is showing that there's New Testament all through the Book of Mormon, and we need to acknowledge it in a little bit different way. I've done this computer analysis project where I've analyzed the text of the Book of Mormon in a lot of different ways, and one of them was to compare Book of Mormon with King James. I took four word engrams that compared between the Book of Mormon and King James Version and found 10,317 instances where four word phrases were the same from the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And some of them are really common. And some of them are what, what gives us that real Book of Mormon narrative, strong feeling like it came to pass, year of the reign of, the face of the earth, among the children of men the borders of the land. These are those phrases that are repeated all through the Book of Mormon narrative. That's all coming from the King James Version. And there's so many of these, ten, over 10,000. Royal Skousen said about this, there's another more interesting part that needs to be considered about the King James Bible. There's all this phraseology in the Book of Mormon text, which is sort of taken from different parts in a given passage, just woven together. It isn't like somebody is taking something like looking at Hebrews, and I'm going to make a little midrash on Hebrews and make a little comment and throw it in the text. It's just phraseology that just happens to show up in Hebrews, and it's being used in a different way than being used in Hebrews. Then there's something from Exodus in that same passage, a little phrase, and it's woven together, and it's like somebody that's translating this 
knows that King James text so well and could just use it. Here's an example from Mormon 9.2. Behold, you will believe in the day of your visitation. Behold, when the Lord shall come, yea, even that great day. And some of these are phrases that come from the Bible, you know, all through like day of your visitation and that great day. But here's one. When the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll. That's from Isaiah 34.4. And the element shall melt with fervent heat. That's from Second Peter. This is probably the most important thing to understand about the Book of Mormon is that it has the text of the King James Version embedded so deeply that you just can't pick it apart. The two books are just woven together. Now let's talk about where the King James Bible has parallels to the storyline in the Book of Mormon, and I think that's really, really interesting. One is comparing the Israelites wandering in the wilderness to, the, to Nephi and his family leaving and going into the wilderness. In both of them, they kind of had miraculous food. In Exodus, they had the quail and the manna. With Nephi, he was told not to make fire and that his food would become sweet in a miraculous process without cooking it. And then since there was no fire, the Lord would be their light. So in First Nephi, I will also be your light in the wilderness and I will prepare the way before you. And then also in, in Exodus, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. And then in both cases, the Lord explains to them why he's doing this. And for both of them, it's to lead them into a promised land for them to remember that he is their God and to and to honor them and remember them, both in First Nephi 17, 14 and Exodus 6, 7, using language like, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am God, and that I, the Lord, did deliver you from destruction. Very similar language and parallels in both these stories. About this, Grant Hardy says, again, in some ways it's quite precise. The various parts of the narrative are carefully composed and fit together in complicated ways, while in other ways the translation had to have been rather free, particularly with regard to 19th century concepts and language, including the pervasive phrasing from the King James Bible. When I encounter anachronisms, I don't automatically think Joseph must have been a fraud. Instead, I ask, what else could this mean? Perhaps the God of the Book of Mormon loves intertextuality and wordplay. He certainly wasn't overly concerned with regular grammar. So let's do a few more of these examples. One of them is a parallel between Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and Moroni in Ether 12. The storyline is very similar. Both of them had a weakness or a problem. Both of them went to God to pray to ask to be strengthened or this weakness removed. Paul's problem was his thorn. Moroni's problem was his writing. He couldn't write very well, and he was worried that people would make fun of him. And in both cases, God's answer is no. I'm not going to change this or get you out of this problem, but that I'm going to help you through it. And then we get beautiful verses in, in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon with God's answer to Paul and to Moroni. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. This phrase, grace is sufficient, appears exactly once in the King James Version and exactly once in the Book of Mormon in these passages. For my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then we get this comparison of strength and weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will gl rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am I strong. And then, Ether 12, 27. 
Just as beautiful verse. And this is the point that I hope that you're hearing from me is that the Book of Mormon testifies of the Bible and it interrelates to the Bible, but it stacks it stacks up to the Bible so well. And we should be proud of this scripture. It is beautiful scripture. Ether 12, 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. I'm going to give five stories here. In each of these five stories, we have parallels in the storyline, and then we have phraseology that's copied and, and used in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. What I want you, some people might look at this and say, oh, Joseph Smith, we got you. We, we got you in the plagiarism. We got you in a in copying this from the Bible. But what I think is happening is that the author of the Book of Mormon is doing this on purpose. It's giving us these parallel stories. And then just in case we don't make the parallel, it's copying this phrase, this phraseology and unique language to point us back to the Bible to just cement the idea that, yes, I'm trying, I'm trying to get you to notice this, and I'm glad that you did notice it. You didn't catch me in a lie. You caught what I was trying to do with this purposeful, intentional intertextuality, which I'm doing for doctrinal and theological points, and I hope that you see how I transformed and changed that story in the Bible, not just that it was copied. Another example from Grant Hardy's understanding of the Book of Mormon was comparing Abinadi to Moses. In Abinadi's trial, he quotes the Ten Commandments, and he's directly referencing the law of Moses. And then Grant Hardy is showing that he's putting this intertextuality on Mormon. So he believes in the historicity of the Book of Mormon more than I would. And he's saying that a lot of these intertextualities is coming directly from the narrator of the Book of Mormon, not the modern translator. So he thinks that Mormon has the Old Testament on a brass plate. So he's kind of making Abinadi appear to seem like Moses so that we understand he's like a type of Moses. And then he uses common phrases. Know that I am the Lord, a jealous God, hardened heart. Who is the Lord that? Stretch forth his hand, pestilence and bondage. All are common phrases between Abinadi's story and then Exodus in the Bible, showing that there's definitely some intentional intertextuality there. A couple more examples from Nick Frederick. One is the dancing girl Salome in Matthew 14, Herod's niece who danced before Herod and got him thinking lustfully and so that she could manipulate him into beheading John the Baptist. And then in Ether 8, the same thing happens where Jared, not the brother of Jared, Jared, but a later Jared, had his daughter dance before Achish to get him, and the same thing, manipulate him into killing her grandfather, who was Jared's father, Omer the king. Another one that Nick Frederick and Joseph Spencer show us, the comparison between Lazarus and King Lamoni. In both stories, we have the person who died, Lazarus and King Lamoni. We have a hero character, Jesus and Ammon, and we have two women in each. And then the Book of Mormon kind of twists the story because instead of, you think it's going to be Ammon taking the Jesus role and, and healing Lamoni in kind of a spectacular way, showing that he's a true messenger of God and true missionary, you know. 
but it's actually Abish, the Lamanite servant who raises Lamoni's wife first, and then it's the queen who raises her husband taking the Jesus role. And Joseph Spencer is trying to get us to see that the Book of Mormon kind of actually has some female progressive, almost feminist kind of messages. And he's made some other points about this in his work related to Nephi. And so pay attention to what Joseph Spencer is doing, teaching us about progressive female equality issues in the Book of Mormon. That's a tall task, but he's actually pulling it off quite well. But in this story, Nick Frederick also points out that there's six key phrases between John 11 and the story in Alma. Once again, it's the author, the creator, intentionally leading us to the King James Version so that we can understand what he's doing with the story and what point he's trying to make. If you're interested in this, check out a podcast episode from Laura Hales on the LDS Perspectives podcast, which I love. And she interviews Nick Frederick, the BYU scholar, who's pointing out a lot of this New Testament intertextuality. He created a methodology to identify whether there's true intertextuality. And it has to do with if the phrase is somewhat rare, if the phrase is used in the same context, and then he has a couple other criteria in his methodology. And he's determining, so he's looking at all the matches with a computer, and then he's determining one by one if this is a true intertextuality. He identified 650 phrases between the Book of Mormon and the New Testament. Not the Old Testament, not the brass plates, but the New Testament. What he says, he believes in Book of Mormon historicity, but what he says is we need to come to terms that there's a difference between what's on the gold plates and what's in the English text of the Book of Mormon. The intertextuality that's just so common all through the Book of Mormon, he's saying, could not be there anciently. It has to be there from a modern source. And this is pushing the faithful LDS apologists into two camps, is what I'm observing. One is Blake Osler expansion model, which we'll talk about in next week's episode. And then the second, I'll just give a teaser on this. There was a humanistic translation maybe done in the 16th, 17th century. And then that was what was given to Joseph Smith in the Searstone. But the point is that I think our faithful LDS scholars are acknowledging a modern and humanistic aspect of the Book of Mormon. Okay, I want to take this a step further and analyze not just the intertextuality between the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible, but between the Book of Mormon and the theological teachings and literature of the 19th century. Take a phrase from the Book of Mormon and then put it into Google Advanced Book Search prior to 1830 and look for some of the hits, and you find an awful lot of interesting things when you do this. For example, demands of justice. Demands of justice is a phrase that's used a few times in the Book of Mormon. We see it in Mosiah 15.9, Abinadi speaking, Alma 34.16, Amulek speaking, and Alma 42.15, Alma speaking, all used in the same way. Here's a little from Alma 42.15. God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect just God and a merciful God also. So let's look at some hits if you put it into advanced Google book search. First one is from Pilgrim's Progress, a book written in the late 1700s. It's a quite popular theological book. Had he required of Adam an atonement for his sin commensurate to the demands of justice, that had been impossible for him to have offered. But in the gift of Christ, justice and mercy met together, righteousness and peace embraced each other. 
and then another one from the Methodist Magazine from 1798. Methodist Magazine shows up a lot, and it's always got a lot of Book of Mormon-y kind of phrases and words. For if sinners are justified, is it because Christ has died, who entering into the holy place his blood speaketh better things than the blood of Abel? Then he turneth aside the demands of justice for violated laws and answereth by the plea of his sacrifice. For he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. So if we search demands of justice, we're going to see a lot of preachers and theology from the 19th century that sounds a lot like the Book of Mormon. And I wrote in a blog post, and I might have made some methodology mistakes here, and I got corrected on this, but you can do this Ngram viewer. It shows you a line chart. If you put in demands of justice, when it became popular and when it faded out of popularity, and you can kind of see trends like that, it's really quite interesting. I noticed demands of justice peaked in popularity right in Joe Smith's day and then kind of tailed off. And I was making a point that this kind of showed that if we put in all these phrases that are from the Book of Mormon, these unique phrases, that we're going to see that it kind of optimizes and, and maximizes right in that time period that Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon, which makes sense. It's Joseph Smith using the words of his day to translate the Book of Mormon. No big deal. Stanford Carmack, who is Royal Skousen's partner in a lot of the research that they're doing, wrote an article published in The Interpreter that kind of chastised me doing this search and saying that if I used better methodology and a better data source to do this same chart, that we would see that this term demands of justice actually was popular in the late 1600s and 1700s. So my chart kind of showed that it came from nowhere into the 1700s, peaked in 1830. But the Google Books doesn't have a lot of stuff from before 1700. So what Stanford Carmack said was, if you take this chart out more on the left-hand side in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, as well as being common in Joseph Smith's day, his kickback against me is that he believes that this is translated in the 1600s. And so he's just making a point that if you ever assume something is a 19th century viewpoint, don't always ignore the fact that it could also be a 16th century or 17th century viewpoint because he and Royal Skousen believe that it was translated in this humanistic process in that earlier time period. A lot of these unique phrases are atonement-related terms. Temporal death, spiritual death, infinite goodness, plan of redemption, plan of happiness, chains of hell, bowels of mercy, infinite atonement, endless misery, carnal and fallen state, atoning blood, lost and fallen state. I made this point in the Old Testament episode that we see evolution of doctrine through time, and this is a point I want to make again, is that this idea of the atonement, the Book of Mormon has a strong Armenian Wesleyan view of Christian doctrine and especially the atonement. And we have this idea that the reason this high Christology atonement view is taught in the Book of Mormon is that it is taught by angels to Book of Mormon prophets. But that just does not make sense to me because to have the highly defined logical arguments that the Book of Mormon is making, it's coming out of the 19th century. And I think you can track it all the way back. I think you can track the Book of Mormon back to Wesley, and then you can track Wesley back to Arminius and Calvin, and you can track them back to 
Pelagius and Augustine. And before that, you had Origen. And before that, you had Justin Martyr and Ignatius. And of course, you can't have that until you have Paul and the high Christology of John that didn't come till the end of the first century. When Jesus died, his apostles thought it was over. They did not understand the atonement. When you look at that great inspiring message of the disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they're depressed. They thought it was over. Jesus had to comfort them and and kind of prompt them and inspire them that, no, this is still going to happen. This is still going on. Another interesting one from the Advanced Google Book Search is on the sacrament prayer. This one from 1828, Book of Common Prayer, John Shepherd. In all humility, we beseech thee, O Almighty God, to accept this unbloody, reasonable, and spiritual sacrifice. Send also thy Holy Spirit upon these elements here spread out, that he may bless and sanctify them. And to those who receive them, this bread may become the precious body of thy Christ and this wine, the precious blood of thy Christ for the remission of sins and life everlasting. Daniel McClellan is an LDS scholar who works for the church in the translation department. He's involved with translation projects like translating the Book of Mormon into other languages, for example. And he's trying to figure out how to translate 2 Nephi 25-23. It is by grace we are saved after all we can do, that famous scripture. And that, for many years, has been taken as a work scripture, meaning we work as much as we can, and then after that, we're saved by grace. And the emphasis is not more on the works piece, more on what we can do. And Stephen Robinson argued in the 1990s that this is not a work scripture. This is a grace scripture, and that that phrase after all we can do, should be considered like a ironic or an exasperation, like despite all you can do. It's meant to say all we can do is like a piddly amount, and it's really the grace is the main thing. But that interpretation didn't really stick, and I think still to today, we take that as a work scripture. Even after Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk in General Conference, using Brother Robinson's interpretation of this phrase, we're still using it as a work scripture. Well, Daniel McClellan went back into the 19th century to see how people use this phrase, after all you can do. He published a paper on this, and he published about 10 different references from the 19th century. Here's one from John Hersey in 1831. But your own wisdom and greatness must be laid in the grave. It is after all you can do the free and unmerited gift of God. From the Evangelical Magazine of 1834, the reason is they have no desire for that in which holiness consists. The fountain still remains corrupt. And after all they can do without his divine influence on the heart, they remain utterly unprepared for the kingdom of heaven. Another one, 1836, from William Brudenell Barter. Here there is an evident misstatement. There is no merit in the performance of the conditions. After all we can do, we are unprofitable servants. The performance of any condition can no more obtain for us eternal life than our own natural strength can move the universe. Eternal life is the free gift of God. And Daniel McClellan says, It seems to me that this passage in 2 Nephi is dipping a toe into the debate about grace and in light of the broadly anti-Catholic bent of the Book of Mormon, takes the side of the authors above against the orthopraxic characterization of Catholic soteriology. Ted Collister gave a speech at BYU on the Book of Mormon, asking whether it's man-made or whether it's divine. 
his logic and several aspects of the Book of Mormon that are just very impressive and above Joseph Smith's level, showing this as evidence that it's historical. And I'm right with him all the way up to the point where it's evidence that it's showing that it's inspired, but just because it's inspired doesn't necessarily mean that it's historical. In this speech, he points to several doctrines in the Book of Mormon, and he says that these are unique doctrines in the Book of Mormon. And then he asks, where could have Joseph Smith got these? But the mistake he makes is that every single one of the doctrines that he uses as examples are all doctrines that are in Joseph Smith's day. Maybe not super well known, but they were there. One example is the fortunate fall, our beautiful doctrine that the fall is not necessarily a, a bad thing. That comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost. It's not super common in Joseph's day, but it's there. Another one that Tad Collister asks is, where did he get the doctrine of the pre-existence that's in Alma 13.3? Well, this is an instance where Brother Collister is misunderstanding the Book of Mormon. And in a similar concept of maybe what Daniel McClellan did to understand what that phrase, after all you can do, if we want to know more about what the Book of Mormon means, if there's something confusing in it, we can go into the 19th century to get more information. And let's look at this so-called pre-existence doctrine in Alma 13.3. And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works. This phrase, from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God, is used almost exactly in a sermon given by Jacob Wood in 1828 where he is quoting John Wesley. The celebrated John Wesley, a distinguished opposer of Calvinism and an advocate of Armenian principles, has given us a plain statement, blah, blah, blah. The scriptures tell us plainly what predestination it is. It is God's foreappointing obedient believers to salvation. And here comes the phrase, not without, but according to his foreknowledge of all their works from the foundation of the world. So, Book of Mormon being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God, and then from this sermon from Jacob Wood quoting John Wesley, God's foreappointing obedient believers to salvation not without, but according to his foreknowledge of all their works from the foundation of the world. So what this verse in the Book of Mormon is doing is it's kicking back against the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. Armenian and subsequently Wesleyan doctrine was distinguishing itself against Calvinist predestination by defining what this uh, foreknowledge is of God. It has nothing to do with preexistence. And here's an example of us being able to understand better what the Book of Mormon means by looking into the 19th century. And that's not a bad thing. We love the Book of Mormon. We want to know how it was meant, how it was intended, what it means. Another one from Brother Collister, he said, and to a post-mortal spirit world in Alma 40, where did Joseph Smith get these profound doctrinal truths that were in fact contrary to the prevailing doctrinal teachings of his time? In Alma 40, verse 11, it says, Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection. And I did a little search for state of the soul, and I found this interesting hit that appears to have some direct correlation between Alma 40. So this is from the State of the Dead and of Those That Are to Rise by Thomas Burnett, 1728. It's a chapter heading. 
And it says, what the future state of the soul is after the corporal dissolution or concerning the middle state of the souls betwixt death and the resurrection as to, as to the degrees of happiness and misery. And then we go to Alma chapter 40 and we see the same phrase as state of the soul. We see the same keyword betwixt. We see between death and resurrection. And we also see the phrase happiness and misery all together. So I'm not saying Joseph Smith had access to this book and plagiarized it, or even that he read this book at all, but these are the things that are in the milieu of Joseph Smith. This one has enough matching phrases and about the same exact topic that it does make you wonder if there's a direct link, but it could be parallelomania. Tom Hanks is married to Rita Wilson that has nothing to do with the volleyball, so parallelomania does happen. I talk about this plain and precious parts concept a lot. The Book of Mormon is imagining an Old Testament time people who believed in high Christology of Jesus Christ. This high Christology wasn't even understood by Jesus' disciples at the time of his death. It's certainly nowhere in the Old Testament, but the Book of Mormon is telling us that it is actually in the Old Testament, but that it's been removed due to this plain and precious parts removed thing. And we see it as a theme all through the Book of Mormon. It's the storyline between Jacob and Sherem. And Sherem believes in the scriptures and believes in the law of Moses, but he rejects Jesus Christ. And Jacob is telling him that he doesn't understand his scriptures, that he's ignoring his scriptures. The trial of Abinadi, I think, is about the same concept. Noah's court asks Abinadi this interesting question. In Mosiah chapter 12, verse 20, and it came to pass that one of them said unto him, What meaneth the words which are written, which have been taught by our fathers, saying, and then they go on to quote Isaiah 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. It's a really interesting question, and it's not, it's not clear what is meant. So let's look at Abinadi's answer to that, and it's still not totally clear, but he answers it by recalling the Ten Commandments, and then talking about the law of Moses and talking about how the law of Moses is not sufficient. And then he goes on to quote the very next portion of Isaiah after this question portion that they asked him, Isaiah 52. He quotes Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And he's reading Jesus Christ into the suffering servant that Isaiah, the Old Testament people would not have read Jesus into that. Isaiah 53. And again, proof texting, likening scriptures concept. It's fine that we're imagining Jesus into that Isaiah 53. Abinadi quotes Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected. And then he goes from there into what I would call a really profound exegesis on Isaiah 53, which is Mosiah 15 and 16. And he starts with that great phrase, and God himself shall come down to redeem his people, and then goes on to testify of Jesus Christ. And so, I kind of think this question of the King Noah's court could be summarized. What is Isaiah talking about in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the suffering servant poem? Is it talking about Jesus things or is it talking about non-Jesus things? And a bit of nice answer is that it is talking about Jesus things. I really think this idea that, I really think this concept that the author of the Book of Mormon wants us to believe that knowledge of Jesus Christ has been known from the beginning of time. It's just been manipulated and hidden by certain powers. That's an important theme of the Book of Mormon. And I think that is a 
awesome theme and and really interesting theme from a kind of allegorical view to picture a people before Jesus Christ who kept the law of Moses, but then also taught about Jesus Christ and believed in Jesus Christ, and then had this dynamic between a different people who kept the law of Moses and had the Jewish scripture, but didn't believe in Jesus Christ, and that dynamic and tension between the two groups. It's a really interesting concept for an allegorical, metaphorical scripture, but I don't think it fits into the actual ancient world in a historical concept. Now let's talk about some challenges to the Book of Mormon related to the content that are in the non-religious aspects of it. And the first one let's talk about are the mound builders. So it was a very common 19th century view among American settlers to view the, the Native Americans as backwards, ferocious, primitive people. But then they're looking around and they're seeing these mounds that appear to be quite complex and they think they're from a more culturally advanced, intelligent, more advanced civilization. So there's a lot of theories floating around how these mounds came about and who are these mound builders. And a quite common theory was that there was a there that there was two ancient groups and one was more civilized and built these mounds and then the more ferocious primitive group wiped them out and then became the ancestors of the Native Americans that the American settlers interacted with. And then there's also all kinds of theories that this other mound building race came from Israel, might have been the Lost Ten Tribes. This is kind of the plot of the book View of the Hebrews, which many people take as a book that Joseph Smith might have plagiarized. And I think that accusation that Joseph Smith plagiarized View of the Hebrews is kind of absurd. But I think it's very appropriate to consider that the story of the Book of Mormon and story of the view of the Hebrews both were in the milieu and in the environment of Joseph Smith and would have been kind of a common way for someone to go if they're imagining an ancient Native American race. Another one is the checks and balances government described in, in Mosiah 29 when the people are going to move from a king system to a judge's system. And Mosiah is making a case for a checks and balances democratic style government that sounds a lot like the United States of American Constitution. And I remember as a freshman at BYU taking a politics class and taking a freshman Book of Mormon class. It was kind of the first time that I really took the Book of Mormon seriously. And I was reading the Federalist Papers for this politics class and reading this. And man, it sounded the same. And I that really jumped out at me, even as a college freshman without a lot of education on these matters. And it wasn't a faith crisis issue for me, and I don't think it needs to be, but it does It does kind of point to a more modern view. I, I don't think that ancient Americans would have been discussing this kind of checks and balances government. Another one along the same lines is that Nephi is shown a vision by the angel, and in this vision he's seeing the future, and he's seeing the future of his people, and, and his, he sees the Lamanites destroy his people. Very depressing for Nephi. And then he sees the far future where the Europeans are coming to the land of America, and he sees Columbus, and he sees the foundation of the country of the United States of America. He sees the Revolutionary War. He sees Joseph Smith. 
and he sees the creation of the Book of Mormon and it going forward, but then it stops there. And I think that's a reasonable pushback to the Book of Mormon questioning, why would his vision stop right there at the time of Joseph Smith? A few others. There's some anti-Catholicism in the Book of Mormon that seems to kind of represent a 19th century Protestant view. A lot of people view the Gadianton robbers stories as some anti-Masonry uh, rhetoric in the Book of Mormon. I'm not so sure I buy that, but that's been noted by some people. Another is Lehi's dream, and there's an anecdote that Joseph's grandfather talked about a dream that was very similar. I'm also not so sure about that because it, it kind of reminds me of Lucy Mac Smith's a famous quote that Joseph would entertain them at night with the stories of the Lamanites and Nephites because these are late recollections and you don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. These things really came before the Book of Mormon or the Book of Mormon came first and then the, these things came and then it just kind of got confused in your memory about which came first. I'm not so sure about those. Now let's talk about what some Book of Mormon defenders of Book of Mormon historicity call some of the important compelling arguments for Book of Mormon historicity related to Book of Mormon content. And of course, the biggest one would be the complexity and consistency of the Book of Mormon. It's over 500 pages long. It's got a very complex narrative with so many different characters and places and geography, and it's internally consistent. And of course, all this Bible intertextuality that we've been talking about these things are extremely complex, and I get accused by some people of being wishy-washy on, on my takes. Like, like, I'm trying to make a vague argument that this is historical by talking about how complex it is. And I, I want to be clear, I don't believe that it's historical. My default view is that this is a humanistic process, that religion is humanistic, that scripture is humanistic, and that it can be inspired in the sense that in our lives, when we interact with the text and the Holy Ghost, that we are spiritually transformed and it's inspiring to us. I'm also open to the general idea that there can be some movement from God down to us in relation to the Book of Mormon text, but I would usually describe that more as a nudge in the general direction than a tight control. But some of these things that we've talked about today seem to be so complex, it just really makes me wonder. I truly believe the Book of Mormon is a mystery. It feels like someone who is very educated, very advanced theologically, who's taking their whole life to write this story. It feels like it's that complex. And to think that Joseph Smith at his age knocked it out, and also that it was almost all knocked out in those 90 days together with Oliver Cowdery, We'll talk about that next time. I do acknowledge that it's a mystery, and I am open to the idea that, that there's a possibility that there's some very direct involvement of God helping Joseph do this through the Holy Ghost in a way that is truly above his intellect and possibility. Another one that LDS defenders like to use a lot is the chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. That's that inverted style where you go in A, B, C, and then come back out C, B, A. And there's some very complex chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Chiasmus could be a sign that this is a tight translation of an ancient Hebrew record, but because of the way that we describe a lot of the anachronisms and a loose humanistic translation, a lot of LDS defenders 
they kind of argue with each other saying, no, it's not possible that ancient Hebrew chiasmus could be preserved through the translation. But some do believe that. Chiasmus also appears in the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a really cool YouTube video that shows the story of John Welch discovering this chiasmus on his mission. And it's very heartwarming and touching. And it feels almost miraculous the way he discovered the chiasmus. I am open to spiritual experience. I can't explain it logically or from a secular scientific standpoint, but I am just going to own my non-modern view that transcendent spiritual experience is possible. So I am even open to the possibility that John Welch as a young missionary had some sort of miraculous experience in discovering chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. My default view is that these are humanistic things that are within the possibility of humans doing it on their own, but then I am open to supernatural influence. But I also want to note that if I'm open to that supernatural experience, I'm also open to that same supernatural influence being involved in other religions. So I don't take that as a sign of LDS exclusivity. I just view it as a way that God might be interacting with all human people. Okay, let's wind down here. I want to share, like I've done the last couple episodes, share my testimony kind of related to this topic of Book of Mormon content. I love Second Nephi 2, that great discourse on the fall, and then juxtapose that with the great discourse on the atonement in Second Nephi 9, where Jacob is the recipient of the blessing in Second Nephi 2, and then the teacher in 2 Nephi 9. I think that's really cool how those relate. And 2 Nephi 2, where we have the fortunate fall, I think that gives us just a little bit more optimistic view on life and the nature of human beings. And then I love that whole opposition in all things concept, and I think it really helps us give meaning into dealing with the suffering and the difficult times of life as we understand that this is just an important part of humanity, an important part of the human experience to suffer the lows in order to have the highs, and recognizing that that's the state that humans are in. And then you combine that with the fortunate fall, and the message for me is just to go out there and experience life, and don't be afraid of making mistakes along the way, because the atonement covers you, and just go out there and Live your best life. Of course, King Benjamin's address is so good. It's just such a powerful discourse on serving each other and humility and, and taking care of the poor, taking care of each other, and being unified as a people in our desire to follow Jesus Christ. I love the visit of the Savior to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi, and I think it's brilliant how the author of the Book of Mormon is, is creating an experience for us to read in the Book of Mormon that kind of packs together all of the best of the Gospels into a short portion of 3rd Nephi. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have Jesus giving them the sacrament, bread and water. We have the interaction with the 12 disciples. We have him healing the people, you know, bringing the children up to him. And then even at the end, I think that it's, they're trying to give us a little bit of that walk to Emmaus experience as he leaves them. And one of the very last things he does is 
expound the Old Testament, which he does on that walk to Emmaus, even using that phrase, expounded unto them. I love the allegory of the olive tree, and I find it such a beautiful teaching of God's love and grace. In verse 21, we see that there's a tree that's put in the very worst spot of the vineyard. It's got poor soil, poor conditions, and the and the servant kind of has a criticism for the Lord, like, why would you do that to that poor tree? And the Lord answers him in verse 22, counsel me not. I knew that it was a poor spot of ground. Wherefore, I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it hath brought forth much fruit. You know people in your life that have just had every trial imaginable, and you think it's almost not fair. But the Lord is the master. He's watching it all, and he's giving nourishment to all of his children. And that person that you just think has had too much suffering, too much trial, you know, they come out of it and they're blessed for it. Then another interesting one in verse 25, we're talking about a tree that's given everything good. It's in a good spot. It's had good care, but yet the fruit is still bad. And I think some of us relate like, all these other people need grace, but I don't need grace because I was raised in a good family. I had a good education. I had everything that I needed, and I'm still a screw-up, so it's my own fault. I don't qualify for grace. But the master is even giving grace to this tree who's had it all, and he's still working with it, still working with it. And then, and then in verse 36, the Lord says, I'm working with this tree because even though the fruits are bad, he says the roots are good. And can't you just imagine yourself pleading with God saying, I know my fruits are bad right now, God, but please work with me. My roots are good. I promise I'm going to get it together eventually. Please keep working with me. Keep, please keep blessing me. And eventually the tree comes through and the fruits are good. And God's grace is there for even that tree that had everything and was still a screw up. I find Alma 5 so inspiring. Alma says, Behold, he changed their hearts, yea, he wakened them out of a deep sleep, and they woke unto God. Behold, they were in the midst of darkness, nevertheless their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. And we've all been there. We've all been there in our dark moments when we, when something brought us out of that, and we turned it around and, and brought light and goodness and, and success back into our life. And then, and then in verse 26, Alma is challenging us. If we're there in that dark moment again where we're just feeling the harshness of life and we need the, the light, he says, And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced the change of heart and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? Can you tap into that moment in the past where you were able to come out of the darkness into the light and now you're in that dark moment and you're feeling closed off to people and things are not going well? Can you tap into that time when you had that light in the world and can you try to bring it back? Alma 7 is considered an exegesis on Hebrews, and I think that's very obvious that it is. But I love that phrase, and he will take upon him their infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. We believe in a God who came down in humility and took on a human tabernacle and experienced all the difficulties of mortality. Why? 
part of it is to part of it is that retribution of sin and that's part of our belief but then another part of it is just this beautiful aspect of he simply wanted to be able to relate to us he wanted to be able to have it an experience for himself so that he could succor his people so that he could relate to us and know how to succor his people in their need beautiful concept of god there in in alma chapter 7 please check out this youtube video of mark rathall He's an Oxford professor of philosophy. Did you know we have an Oxford professor of philosophy breaking down mercy and justice in the Book of Mormon? In this Maxwell Institute presentation, he's breaking down Alma's talking about mercy and justice. He describes it in a way that really shows its profundity and depth of the Book of Mormon. He says, and, and maybe I'm not smart enough to really totally understand, but I listened to that YouTube video but I think what he's saying is that justice does a job. Justice's job is to punish the sinner, give consequences to the sinner, so that the sinner kind of gets his act together and becomes a better person. Okay, So that's the job of justice. And mercy cannot rob justice because that job is an important job to do. But when mercy takes the role of doing the work of justice by doing that same work, then things can offset each other and it won't be robbing justice. So mercy does the work of justice by infusing love and mercy into the sinner such that the sinner changes and transforms himself into someone who has mercy on others who loves others and doesn't want to sin and break the law anymore. So it's in effect doing the same work as justice. That's a very deep and inspiring doctrine in the Book of Mormon. Let me close with my take on the Book of Mormon, what I think its purpose is in the Restoration. It's very interesting. It came right at the beginning of the Restoration. It gave us this set of Protestant doctrines that, like I said, there's nothing new in there, but I think it took the very best of all the Protestant doctrines. I think its timing is perfect because it came after basically all of the great theological debates of the Protestant Reformation are coming to an end. And now it puts its stamp and puts its judgment on taking all of the best arguments of, of the Protestant Reformation and synthesizing it into our founding set of scripture. Okay. And now from there, I think it gives us a place that with a modern prophet and with progress and revelation that a modern prophet can explore different areas. And Joseph Smith explored. He went into polygamy and temple ceilings and temple ordinances and, and King Follett doctrine with theosis and deification. And he explored a form of universalism with the three degrees of glory. He was wheeling and dealing and exploring and then over time, we've kind of scaled back and, and come back to the Book of Mormon. And I think that's the Book of Mormon's purpose. It grounds us in this, what I would call perfect Christian doctrine. And then if we stray too far, we always come back to it. Ezra Taft Benson counseled us in the 80s that we had gone too far away from the Book of Mormon. And then out of that came the grace movement where Bob Millett and Bruce Hafen and Stephen Robinson brought us these messages of grace and really kind of transformed our church. And now President Nelson with the emphasis of Jesus Christ. 
we're coming back to the Book of Mormon, and I think that's what the Book of Mormon's role is for us. And I'm not saying that that's like an absolute thing that God intended and pushed down to us, but I think that's what its theological role is for us, and I think that's a beautiful and true thing. And that's what we wanted to accomplish today, I think. Thank you for joining us, and please join us next time. Thanks.